Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible family therapist and sex therapist, Liz Dubay. Hello, Liz, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. I'm excited to talk sex with you today. <laughs> Me too. And that's <laughs> Let's <basically>, talk pretty. <laughs> the topic for today is all things sex. And for those that don't know, Liz Dubay is a certified sex therapist, coach, and licensed marriage and family therapist who loves working with people who want to better understand themselves sexually and feel sexually empowered. She has a private practice in Long Beach, California, where she helps people with all things related to sex and intimacy. And she has an online coaching program for women struggling with sexual desire. She has helped thousands of men, women, and couples feeling stuck sexually and is working her ass off to save the world one bedroom at a time. How are you doing today, Liz? I'm doing good. I have a sexy voice today. I don't normally (laughs) have as sexy a voice as this, but you know, I have a nice cold that's making me sound more exotic than I am. A little more, <laughs> a little more <laughs> deeper, deeper voice than usual. I'm not a smoker. Well, I appreciate you persevering through the sore throat. And I'm glad you have some tea here to keep your throat nice and <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try not to do too I was going to say. <laughs> I knew it. I I'm going to try, try not to do too many innuendos during this episode. So today's episode is on all things sex. And I think, you know, hear that three letter word and your ears kind of perk up. And it's something that we're all kind of interested in. But my first question is like, should we be interested in it? Like, how important is sex and sexual satisfaction? for our own health and happiness, and also for the success of our relationships? Well, of course, the answer is yes, from me, because I think it's important. I mean, I wouldn't have chosen this career if I if I didn't think it was incredibly important for people. I think when things are going fine, when things are good, then it's not really a big deal. But when things aren't meeting your expectations, or, or when you're not feeling comfortable in your sexuality, then it's a big deal. And and it's definitely something that people need help with. There's so much shame and misinformation and just really conflicting ideals or things that are communicated to us about sex. So being able to go to an expert and get accurate information, I think is just essential for people who are struggling or people who just want to make it to the next level of sexual empowerment. Yeah, I wouldn't mind going a little bit into those conflicting ideals around sex that you just mentioned and ask you a little bit about our cultural approach to sex. Because on the one hand, we kind of do see sex everywhere. It's in advertisements and it sells and you hear about somebody's OnlyFans account and other things like that. But on the other hand, we still have that like 
puritanical, like pearl clutching, like they're teaching sex to children. Oh my gosh. Like it's both seems very overtly expressed while simultaneously repressed in conversation and education and different things like that. So what's your kind of critique of our cultural approach to sex? (laughs) It's fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, everything that you just said is so spot on. We're told that once we're married and in in a committed relationship that it's okay to have sex, but don't do anything before then. And then once you get married, you're supposed to know how to do everything. And once you're in a committed relationship, you're supposed to know how to really get your needs met sexually or meet your partner's needs sexually. And for women, this is particularly difficult because if we're, if we're stifling our sexuality and our sexual desire all day long, and then all of a sudden we're supposed to just light up for our partners, it, that, that is very difficult. And, and I say for women, it's so difficult. I think if men were stifling it all day long in the ways that women do, it would be just as difficult for men. But I think that we, men are not getting as many mixed messages about being sexy, being sexual. I think it's normalized more for guys to be horny. And it's it's almost like this idea that men are just ready to go 24-7. I don't think that's actually accurate, but it's certainly a normalized ideal that is communicated to us. And, and women, it's like, oh, if you wear a short skirt or you show too much cleavage, then you're looking for trouble. It's like, what? We're looking for trouble. How about we're looking for just embracing our sexuality and enjoying our bodies because we were given flesh and why not lean into that? But yeah, I mean, that's, it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) It is complicated. And it's so interesting because I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but I have heard that like, if you look at women in the United States and the chances of them orgasming during sex with another person is a lot lower than a country like Brazil or something. Like I want to say it's like 90% of women in Brazil versus like 30%, maybe 20% in the United States. And it's again reflected like in the media where, you know, children these days can see thousands of acts of violence by the time they reach 18 and the, the different television shows that they watch. Meanwhile, like it's really amazing to watch a foreign film where sexuality is more expressed, where you see nudity and, you know, you see one nipple and it's not like the parents going to cover the, you know, cover the child's eyes. Dear God, you can't possibly see that. So you do bring up a very important point about how when we're not brought up to experience our bodies as sexual things, sexual being, sexual avenues for sexual pleasure, then we end up having a really hard time experiencing that later as adults. Yeah. I mean, it's just hard to flip that switch, walk in the door and flip that switch. And and Americans, we have this misinformation that if we talk to our kids about sex, they're going to go run out and do it. And that's just not true that we know from the research that in Europe, they just say, you know, cover it you know, like use protection. They don't say don't have sex. They don't say they don't promote abstinence. They, they promote, promote safe sex or safer sex. And the rates of teenage pregnancy are incredibly lower than in, in America. So how do we explain that? Some, somehow we're just not taking this information and using it to our benefit. But I think a lot of it is, you know, parents with their 
they've been socialized. They're uncomfortable to talk about sex. They don't know what to talk about. And so then nothing gets talked about. And there's all this taboo that we're surrounded by growing up. And yeah, I mean, nipples are really sexy. I mean, who cares about the the breast part? The nipple is the is the part that gets you in trouble, right? Like, <laughs> you can see a breast, but you can't see a nipple. <laughs> what is that all about, right? Crazy. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, you simultaneously see certain parents complaining that school shouldn't be teaching this thing; it should be learned at home. But then they're not learning that at home. <laughs> <laughs> They're not teaching exactly. these things. <laughs> exactly. I've taken thousands of people's uh, sexual history. You know, okay. like when they come in, I ask them about their sexual history and I ask them, how did you learn about sex? And they say, oh, basically it narrows down to that sex ed class that you had in school, maybe in junior high and then another one in high school and then Hollywood. But so few people say, oh, I actually sat down and had a conversation with my parents on multiple occasions as I grew up. It was like, oh, yeah, my parents sat down after I could have been having sex and actually started to say, hey, uh, this is sex. It's dangerous. Don't get an STI and don't get pregnant. I mean, <laughs> that was the, the conversation. And so then no wonder we're like, oh, wow, that must sex must be like we, we don't we don't know what it's about. So it makes us even more curious versus parents saying, you know what? Sex feels really, really good. And this is why a lot of people make really bad choices and don't <laughs> use condoms when they should be using condoms or have sex with people that maybe aren't safe or in situations that are maybe not safe. Because once you start to get aroused, man, all your logical thinking goes out the door. So educating people about that, our kids about that, of like, yeah, it does feel good. And go pleasure yourself in your bedroom privately to figure out how to satisfy yourself so that you can show the partner that you end up having sex with. That would be a dream, right? If we received <laughs> comprehensive, pleasure-based sex education rather than it's going to get you diseased. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I find it really interesting you mentioned that you take, you've taken thousands of people's sexual history. And I'm curious what other insights you've gained from working with folks and I also thought it was interesting how you mentioned people said they learned about sex from two places, sex ed and Hollywood. And because I'm wondering if one is, is porn included in, in the Hollywood part? You know what? Actually, yes. Let's, let's make sure that... <laughs> is it ever like, oh, I learned it with somebody else? Yeah, I think to me, that's always a lovely story is if, if you learned it with another person, if the two of you were at similar levels and you felt comfortable to be able to explore each other and not caught up in, oh, I'm going to make a mistake, or what if I lose my erection, or if I don't do it right. It's like, there's no way to, right way to do it. It's all about pleasure and connecting with the person that you're with. So there's no wrong way. It's like, you just do what feels good. And you keep, you ask them what feels good to you. This is what feels good to me. And there's no wrong way to do it when you're leaning into consent and communication and pleasure. So yeah, I think, I think it's lovely when people learn together when they have like a really positive first sexual experience to where they can be silly and playful and lean into the awkwardness of that sex is, you know, it's, it's messy. It's there, there are funny noises. It's hard to get into various positions. Our bodies are kind of flopping in different places. It's not like Hollywood. 
that our bodies aren't moving into, we are not transitioning from one position to another in the way that Hollywood shows us. You know, it requires, hey, hey, I want to do doggy style. Can you bend me over? Oh, great. Let's do that. But in, in TV, it's just like somehow the woman ends up in that position, you know? So that is a lot of misinformation. And, and, and so then when people get into these positions and they think, oh, is there a right way to do it? I'm like, where'd you get that idea that there's a right way to do it? So I love what I'm already hearing around what makes for good sex, including consent, communication, almost not taking it so seriously, but being open to play and silliness. And going back a little bit to what you've learned working with, working with people and their history is what are some of the biggest blocks that you have found that people almost kind of bring to the bedroom that doesn't end up giving or providing the best experience? I would probably say that the biggest block is orgasm focused. So as sex therapists, we call it performance focused, which is a broader term. But the idea that it's all about getting to the orgasm, that my partner needs to orgasm a certain way, I need to orgasm a certain way, maybe it needs to be in a certain order, maybe it needs to be together. I think that's a really common block. I think maybe another block would be the feeling like there's a certain way to do it, that there's a right way to do it. And... Oh, of course, the blocks are people who have kinks that don't align with what Hollywood has shown us. And porn, I think in some ways, porn can normalize kinks, but in other ways, I don't know that it necessarily does because people don't really talk about it. Whereas I think maybe we talk about Hollywood a little bit more openly, but the kinks that we might see in porn, I think it's still kind of like the secret dark shadow experience and that we don't talk about with other people. And there's so many jokes about kinks that we might just say with friends. And so then that would reinforce that, oh, my kink, there must be something wrong with me because I have this kink. And the idea that I need to fix this kink and no longer use it as a way to increase my arousal. And and honestly, I haven't had a lot of luck with that. <laughs> that <laughs> if you have a kink and that's what gets you there, you know, whatever you resist persists, you know, that saying it so applies to sex. If you try to, if you try to push that down, it's whack-a-mole. It's just going to keep coming back up. It's not going to go away. You need to find healthy ways to be able to integrate that into your sexual relationship and to navigate it with a partner who may or may not align with that kink. That's so interesting. I want to return back to this idea of whether or not our desires have to be fulfilled or whether we can keep them as fantasies. But I want to go first go into how you mentioned people feel like there's a certain way that sex needs to be done. People have a certain image of what makes good sex and that can get in the way of one's own authentic sexuality or sexual expression. And I know a lot of sex educators who talk about the importance of expanding our idea of what sex is and what sex can be beyond just what you might call PIV intercourse. I've heard ideas like sex is everything that happens 24 hours before sex or more universal ideas like sex is being in your body with another person. So I'm curious, what are some conceptualizations around sex that you like or find really helpful to introduce to folks? I used to say that it was like any naked act that involves eroticism and pleasure. But then I had clients that schooled me and said, why do you have to be naked? <laughs> I thought, 
You're right. I mean, you can totally get off with your clothes on, rubbing your bodies with one another, rubbing yourself with your clothes on. So it doesn't require being naked and it doesn't require any sort of intercourse. And I really hate this idea of like, it's so heteronormative. It's like, okay, the penis goes in the vagina. Well, okay. So what about the penis goes in your anus? What about... (laughs) that no penis goes in a vagina like why why are we why do we continue to communicate in ways that are that that are so you know that are not inclusive but ultimately it's like okay pleasure and eroticism i think the the erotic element is probably important cuz you can have pleasure in other ways that might feel nurturing or healing or affectionate but when it's sex it's like there's an erotic element to it where there is an element that you're you're pushing to a, a level that can take you down the road of orgasm or not i love the idea of eroticism and i'm curious what it means to you and how you might recommend cultivating more eroticism in one's love life. Wow. It's such a broad term too. It's like, I use it all the time and I go, oh, let me Google it. What's the definition? (laughs) I, okay. So cultivating eroticism, I think is, is being in your body and allowing those flickers of desire to turn into a flame. And we're so busy. We're so stressed out. We're so caught up in stuff that we constantly squash those flickers of desire. And, uh, and so being able just to notice, to be in your body and notice, oh, what's happening there when I move my hips, when I move my pelvic area, what's happening there? And, and then what is it that makes you aroused? What are the things that turn you on? Is it watching someone? Is it being watched? Is it being dominated? Is it doing the dominating? Is it a kink that feels like really taboo that you shouldn't be doing and allowing yourself to get curious with these little whispers that are fantasies or desires and, you know, creating space for that. It's like, how often do we allow ourselves masturbation that's, that's beyond just getting to the orgasm to be able to explore what turns me on, whether it be reading erotica, which is basically porn in words, right? Or watching porn and educating yourself about hmm, ways to expand your, your fantasies. Because I think that we all have fantasies. I've had so many people tell me I don't have fantasies. I say, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe you haven't tapped into it yet, but we're all capable of having fantasies. And if you don't allow yourself to be erotic, you probably are not allowing yourself to dive into fantasies. So they, they it feels like they kind of go together, but I don't know that they necessarily need to go together. But I think being embodied, like the, the movement of your body, dancing, yoga, erotic, sexy massage with a partner. Erotic massage to me is just like a sexy massage. It's like, okay, are you, are you teasing my erogenous zones? And, um, and allowing your mind to, to go where those flickers of desire start instead of stopping it and saying, oh, I've got chores, I've got work, I've got responsibilities, there's things to do. 
and just to s- slow down and lavish in the idea of being sexy, some sort of fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I guess that would be a start. Well, some words that come to mind just listening to you are excitement, mystery, and exploration is kind of what I'm hearing. I loved at the beginning that you mentioned about being in your body and allowing the flickers of desire to turn into a flame. And I love the metaphor because that is the beginning of like, wow, like what really, you know, excite me, excites me, what really brings energy and, and how can I continue to feed that flame, right? Until it turns into just some fiery passion. Yeah. And going back to what you said earlier around what we resist persists. And I've heard this this idea around emotions, right? But this is the first time I've heard it around desires. So I love to go a little bit more into that because I'm almost imagining that, let's say a person's in a monogamous relationship. Like this is an agreement they've come to with their partner and they have certain kinks that the other person isn't into or they have certain fantasies around playing with others, for example, and one partner doesn't have these fantasies. So... Does Do all desires need to be fulfilled? Should they need to be fulfilled? Are fantasies always... Does the fantasy always meet up with reality when, <laughs> when we finally do get that thing we've been craving? So it's funny, like sh- should is should and normal, normal are not words that I use in my practice. We don't should and we don't. We don't should on ourselves and we don't say what's normal. We talk about maybe what's typical, but I try to go away from that because it's that creates so much shame. And this is why people feel like maybe it's not okay for me to lean into my kinks, my desires because of the shame, because it isn't normal. Like what, like why, why is missionary style between a man and a woman normal? (laughs) Okay. It's a common thing. This is kind of like, I guess this is a place that a lot of people, heterosexual people start, but it's all something that's socially constructed. So I think that whatever your kinks are, you get to enjoy those. And you get to find a person who consents with you to align with that. It may not look exactly the way you want it to look because it, it yeah, it's, it's difficult if, I guess one of the stereotypical fetishes would be like foot fetish, right? It's difficult if your partner is turned off by your foot fetish. How are you going to navigate that? First off, I, I, I think that one of the things is we like variety is the spice of life, right? <laughs> is that, that we all need novelty. And even if you have a kink that gets you off, you can't be, that can't be the sole source of your arousal and orgasm, especially if your partner doesn't align with that kink your partner is going to feel frustrated that like, you don't even want me anymore. All you want is your kink. And so that's where it can be problematic is when we're not branching out and expanding and, and using our imaginations to be able to expand beyond that. Just that, that one thing we've all got our favorite things that we like sexually, but you know, your favorite thing after a while, like if you know, your favorite food is pizza, but you eat it every meal at some point, it's no longer going to be your favorite. You're going to need a break, especially if your partner doesn't really enjoy pizza, right? So I think everyone gets to be able to lean into their desires as long as it's with a consensual, a, a consenting adult. 
I resonate with a lot of what you're saying because I do think that human sexual expression is infinite, right? There's so much more than just the common ideas that we have around it. And that is a one a really wonderful way to bring in excitement and passion to your relationship is to explore new things. And But on top of that, what is your best recommendation or thing to do when there is that desire discrepancy? When there is one person who wants something and the other person isn't isn't that into it. Yeah. It I mean it, it is a challenge. So so like I said earlier, don't make it your sole focus of your sexual encounters. Use your brain and your fantasy when your partner's not available to use it in the physical space. Make sure your partner knows that you want them, you desire them and get curious with them. How, how, what makes you feel desired? What can I do to make you feel desired so that it doesn't feel like sex is all about my kink? If it's something that, that turns them off, why does it turn them off? Because it's not aligning with our social construction of what is normal sex. And, and I don't, you know, and I'm saying, get curious. This is a hard conversation to have between two people because your partner's acceptance of it or your your ability to have pleasure is contingent upon your partner's acceptance of it. And if you're in a monogamous relationship, that's very challenging. And so there's a lot on the table at stake. And so it's hard not to be in a place of demanding or retreating and just shutting down because I don't want to lose the love of my life because my partner doesn't like my kink. And I think that's where sex therapy really comes in handy is to be able to talk to someone who is specialized in this area that can help you explore what are the narratives you have surrounding your kink and what is your partner's narrative surrounding the kink and how can you find some place in the middle where both of you can get your needs met. And because uh, I think a lot of people retreat, they really don't share all their fantasies because they're so scared of the loss of that love. Absolutely. I love how you said that your ability to experience pleasure is contingent upon your partner's acceptance of it. And that's so important. And you also bring up a really important point around the obstacles that we have around expressing our desires, not just the shame put on to us by our culture, but also that the agent of that shame is going to be our partner. <laughs> so we have this desire and we might have some fear around expressing it because we think our partner might shame us or judge us or love us less. And I want to get into that, but I feel like we should just do a quick definition real quick because you keep mentioning the term kink, kinky, fetish. So just real quick, what is a kink and what are some examples? So... It's funny because again, like this social construction is like, what is a kink? Like, I don't actually know, like at the top of my head, what would be the definition of a kink? But basically it, I, the way that my clients tend to look at it is like when they have something that they're into that gets them off, that falls outside of the vanilla construct of sex. And so examples could be being seen having sex in public. Uh, like I said earlier, the foot fetish, it could be fantasies about being raped 
it could be, although that's like such a common fantasy that I don't even know if we call that a kink anymore. I guess a kink could be being tied up. It feels, that feels kind of vanilla to me, but because it's so common now, you know, now like after 50 shades, it's like, okay, this is a more, it's more normalized. Spanked. Those are some at the top of my, uh, the top of my head. I appreciate it. I think whenever people ask questions, it's always like, you know, for my friend who might not know what this term, (laughs) who might not know what this means. (laughs) So it's funny because you mentioned, oh, like being tied up is so normalized. I still think it's, it's new for a lot of folks. I still think bringing things up is new for a lot of folks. And there's that big obstacle around expressing our desire. And we already talked about kind of the judgment or shame that might result from it. But another obstacle I feel like is almost thinking that we don't deserve our desires being met or that if we express what we want, it makes us appear needy or dependent or selfish, right? And something I've read and heard from you is that actually being a selfish lover makes you a better lover, which I think is contradictory to what most people believe. So why... Why do you think selfishness, which tends to have a negative connotation, is actually helpful in the bedroom? Yeah, I mean, I use that term because it's provocative and it's fun to get people thinking, you know, what does this mean? Because it's definitely not the idea that that stereotypical ideal of the selfish lover being like the young dude who comes really quick and says, oh, that was good for me. How how was that for you? And rolls over, you know, (laughs) like that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about selfish in the sense of, you're leaning into your desires, what you want in an uninhibited way. And you are not apologizing for what you want and what you desire. And you're giving yourself permission to lean into all things that turn you on. And this is often really embraced by partners because they feel desired to be on the receiving end. It's like, oh, yeah, you want me. You want this experience. You're so into it. You're really connecting with the erotic space that we are in right now. Whereas like the opposite would be if you're such a giving lover, a giving lover is fabulous. But if you're just so much about pleasing that person, sometimes you get caught up in feeling insecure of like, am I doing it right? Am I pleasing this person? And, and that, that can show up as anxiety or just not very sexy, not very uh, erotic. And I think that's why I'll get people to shift over to that. The people that tend to be a little bit more anxious, insecure, overly people-pleasing, then that's why I suggest that they go into more, like, we've got to put you on the completely other spectrum to get you to start shifting out of, you're being so hypervigilant about, okay, did, did that work? Did they like that? Are they responding to that? It's like, that's just not that doesn't feel like a mutual experience. It feels like you are serving me. And that there that can be really hot and sexy occasionally, but on a regular basis to feel like sex is like all about you doing me a favor or you serving me. Like we're, I think that we're all looking for a mutually satisfying experience. And if both of us are showing up as self selfish, then we navigate it through communication of what I want, what you want, and then we both can get our needs met. It wouldn't be ideal for one person to be selfish and then the other person gets into the giver. So it's really both people showing up as authentic, 
expressing what they want and what they need, not need, you know, we don't need, it's just what we want, what we desire and not apologizing about it. Yeah. The word confidence is coming up hearing you knowing what you want, having the confidence to express it and not apologizing for your authentic desires. Yeah. That's a hard one because if you weren't, if, if, if what you like isn't normalized, you feel like, oh, what I like isn't right, or you're scared that there's some loss associated with your likes, it's hard to be confident in bed. So it's interesting you mentioned the guy who comes really quick, turns over, falls asleep, <laughs> starts snoring. <laughs> the female is like, huh, wow. Which is a common stereotype. Which is so interesting because it almost runs contrary to the other common stereotype that men always are the ones wanting sex, thinking about sex, while women are the ones who say they have a headache or have to make up some excuse or are getting approached by men and have to say they have a boyfriend in order to, to shoo them off. And combining these two ideas, I'm almost imagining like, yeah, women aren't wanting the sex because the sex is bad. <laughs> <laughs> but if exactly <laughs> so what do you what's your take on yeah these these stereotypes and is there truth to them and how do we get past them well yeah i used to get in trouble in grad school because i'd say well stereotypes are true like 75 percent of the time aren't they that's why they're stereotypes <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean i think typically men do have more desire than women and uh, this is why gay men have so much more sex because you don't have the barriers of do, the, the the woman being the barrier constantly. But I think, yeah, it certainly starts with sex being worth wanting. And if sex isn't worth wanting, why, you know, people would rather watch TV, eat, sleep, like be productive in areas of their life that feel satisfying. So we first, we've got to make sex worth wanting. And that requires communication. <laughs> about what we want. <laughs> and we're not taught to say, honey, what do you like? We, in, in the initial stages of dating, we're both probably equally aroused in heterosexual relationships. If we're talking about, you know, that stereotype, right? And in all relationships where, you know, typically they're, you know, they're both, we both meet at similar levels of desire, but it wanes with women because of all these factors that I spoke about earlier, the idea that we're shedding ourselves down sexually because we get all these contradictory ideas about being sexy. If women are too sexy, then we either get shamed by other women or we get raped by men. I mean, these, those, are the, those are those underlying messages that come up when we get dressed in the morning, we think about our safety. Men don't think about their safety when they get up in the morning. And so we, we think about either our emotional safety or our physical safety. So from the moment we wake up in the morning, we're stifling that desire and men aren't doing that. And so this is why you already have that discrepancy. Then you go into the work environment. And again, women really need to have that barrier to be considered professional, to be taken seriously. So we're again, shutting it down. It, as a mom, we're told you can't be sexy as a mom. Like, well, why? Like, there's no sexy moms. That's not okay. There's, you know, you're going to get shamed from other moms. You need to wear mom clothes. And, and so all day long, we're stifling it. And so, and then if sex isn't worth wanting, then like, <laughs> it's, that's great. That's good common sense to not want to have sex. So I think 
that's often what I'm promoting in my workshops and in my and in the work that I do for women is that you have flickers of desire all day long. What you're doing is you're squashing them because of the safety component that I talked about. But if you were conscious and you started fueling them, you have a flicker of desire and you say, oh, I'm going to text my partner. I'm going to tell them, oh, I thought about like how great the sex was last night. Let's do that again. Or you looked really hot on your way out to work this morning. Or you go and masturbate. Or you allow yourself to take some erotic dancing lessons, or you do erotic dancing at, at home. Um, you do yoga and and breathe into your root chakra and really start to pay attention to that there is action going on in your pelvic area if you allow it, if you allow your body to move in ways that fuel it. And I think those are some basic foundational things that I talk about that require intention that I think a lot of people don't realize that, that women have to be more intentional. I think that men, it's just natural. Like there's this sort of acceptance of that men are sexual beings and they think about sex and it, and they're, they're not forced to stifle it. I mean, certainly the Me Too movement has, (laughs) has pushed, has stifled men in ways that I think are appropriate, that, that different inappropriate flirtations at work now are being stifled in ways that they weren't before. But I think that men are are noticing their flickers of desire all day long. And so then of course that builds up. And then once there's an opportunity for sex, then they're they're ready to go. And so in order for women to align more closely with their male partners, or I mean this is common in lesbian relationships, both women being able to align, you know, they need to fuel that desire as well. But they, they, it requires a consciousness of and and a relearning and an unlearning of of ideals that that have put us in this like sexless mentality in long term relationships. Yeah, listening to you, I'm curious about the connection between passion and excitement in our sex life and passion and excitement with the rest of our life. I'm thinking about how depression, for example, just kills libido, right? And oftentimes stress can really kill libido. You might have a client and they're not having sex and they're stressed and overworked and you're not going to feel very sexy on your body when you're feeling that way. When you mentioned going to work and having flickers of desire, I'm almost also imagining like, you know, you're just looking out out the window wishing your life was different. (laughs) And, uh, you know, if you're not happy in your life, your life path, your work, um, it's going to be hard to feel free in in the bedroom. So I'm also kind of curious, is it chicken or egg? You know, like, will passion in my bedroom help my life? Will passion in my life help the bedroom? What's what's your kind of take with this connection? Hmm. I tend to think that it's more outside the bedroom that helps to fuel in the bedroom. But some of the ways that I help clients is from, I'd say I take a two-pronged approach. Like we we work on the things that are happening outside the bedroom, but sometimes we really need to just start to reintegrate touch of yourself, of your partner to remind you that you are a sexual being. Because sometimes people come to me and they go, I'm asexual. Okay. So tell me your history. And they tell me their history. They're not asexual. They've just been shutting down their sexuality for so long that it feels like it's not there. And it's become the new normal for them. And so I'll use that to be able to start, you know, like get in touch with your body. But I think, yeah, depression, if you're depressed, you're just surviving. 
if you're just surviving, you're not going to think about sex. Sex is sex is that next level of thriving. And if you're in the survival mode, you're just trying to get into the shower in the morning. You're just trying to like figure out how to make it through your work day. Why? How could you ever even pay attention to flickers of desire? Like those are so the the rubble that has covered those flickers of desire needs to be removed first and having a sense of purpose having things in your life that bring you joy and excitement i think are essential and if you have none of those and you're wondering where your sexual desire went i'm going to say like i'm not going to say in my session but i'm going to say uh, duh like of course like it, that's okay let's normalize that and let's let's help you with these other things that you're struggling with rather than experiencing shame because you don't feel sexual desire. So as we're winding down, I feel like I have to ask the sex therapist her best sex tips. And <laughs> I know, <laughs> but I know it's very individual. I know, you know, you're like, what should I do? Well, it depends on the circumstances, but I'm just imagining I'm a listener. I'm listening to the podcast. Once it's finished, what's like the one thing that I can do to improve my sex life? Is it read a book? Is it fill out a checklist of sexual desires? What's the best secret? <laughs> yeah, that's such a hard, you know, because, you know, people aren't cookie cutters, you know, so, so everybody comes to me with a different struggle. And once I figure out the struggle and the roots of those struggles, that's when I give my prescriptions, right? And but I, I guess I would, I always go back to, this is my foundation, be curious and communicate. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would say that if you don't have a partner, start getting curious and, and find ways to communicate with friends about like, what are, what are, what are the things that turn you on? What are you doing? What is your history? And have conversations to, to learn about people and to learn about yourself. If you have a partner, start getting curious and communicate with them. Say, hey, I, I listened to this podcast and I was realizing that we haven't really had a lot of in-depth conversations about the things that I do to you that you like and the things that I do to you that you'd like more of and maybe the things that I do to you that maybe you'd like less of. And just to start a conversation about what are some things that we haven't done yet that would be fun. What are some of your fantasies that you have that you'd like to do? And what are some of your fantasies that you have that you're like, fuck, no, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> but it's a great <laughs> fantasy that I tap into. But it's going to be so incredibly important for you to come from a place of compassion in those conversations. Because like you said earlier, is that your partner is the agent of your shame. Like that is just that you are holding their heart in your hands. And when they share their kinks, their desires with you, if you show them negative nonverbals, if you yuck their yum, there's not going to be another authentic conversation until there's some serious repair. So how about that one? Does that work? I love <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, it wasn't any whips and chains or, you know, or uh, dildos or vibrators, but, you know, that's a whole nother fun conversation. <laughs> Give me a couple drinks and we'll dive into that. <laughs> we'll switch from the tea to something else. But... <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, this has been really wonderful, Liz Dubay. Thank you for coming on to the show. But I do have to finish by asking the same question I love to ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? I wish that everyone knew that 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 love comes and goes with with long-term relationships and that partners aren't perfect and love is not a Hollywood made story. Love is the highs and the lows and yeah. Wonderful. Before we go though, I want to make sure I don't want to forget to mention my workshop that I have ongoing. Yes, that's the next question. So for our listeners who want to learn more <laughs> uh, work with you, how can they find you? So you can find me on my website, Talk Sex with Liz. And you can find me on TikTok. I love doing videos that it's just my own entertainment, but they do tend to be educational and informative, usually. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you're in if you're if you're in California, you can reach out to me for therapy. If you're outside of California, you can reach out to me for coaching. And if you want some online resources for increasing your desire or feeling sexually empowered, I've got a great four-week workshop that is designed for people that are wanting to explore and expand their sexual desires and their sexual satisfaction. It's designed just for women. And it's you'll meet with me weekly, ask all the questions you've got, and I'll provide you with all the resources you need to be able to start to explore these things that we talked about today. This like, how, how do I become erotic? How do I start to ignite desire that's been lost for a while? And that's something that I designed because I, I get so many people struggling with that. It feels like the most common thing for women. And like we talked about earlier, and one-on-one -on -one therapy is just not saving the world one bedroom at a time, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate it. It's so good that you're expanding your reach to to help more women. And I encourage everyone to check you out and sign up for that program if any of the things that Liz said today resonated with you. So thank you so much, Liz Dubay, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the valuable lessons that we learned today, including some of the biggest blocks to a good sex life is being so focused on orgasm, aka focused on performance, and also feeling like there's a certain way to do it. Remember that we all need novelty, variety is the spice of life, and that eroticism is being in your body and allowing those flickers of desire to turn into a flame. And sometimes our partner is an agent of that shame and we can cultivate non-judgment and openness and curiosity with each other because your ability to experience pleasure is contingent upon your partner's acceptance of it. Confidence is key, knowing what you want, expressing it, not apologizing for your desires. And remember, nobody's perfect. There will be ups and downs in your relationship. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Liz. Thank you, Zach. That was quite a great synopsis. I'm so <laughs> impressed. <laughs> thank you. Well, you're, I thank you for all the wisdom. <laughs> it was fun. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. 
To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.